I have not introduced myself to you because you came a little late. Uh, I'm Juliana Pilan. And for those of you who have come a little late, I'm the director of the Center for Culture and Security. I would love to introduce um, our, uh, our keynote speaker, but the honor will go, have to go to Amir Fakhavar, uh, who is the introducer of our keynote speaker. Uh, he is a research um, visiting fellow at, uh, actually not visiting, he's a research fellow. <laughs> Uh, it just, uh, yeah, he's been here f for for a good three years, yes, um, and uh, he is uh, well known to to many, uh, certainly to people in Congress and the Senate, uh, as well as the Iranian community, both in the United States and and in Iran. Uh, so I will, without further ado, <laughs> I will. Um, let him do the introductions and thank you so much for visiting our school. We are very honored indeed. Wow, what a long journey. It's, uh, it's 20 years when I started my fight for freedom and democracy and it's, it was a dream to have the room full of freedom fighters and scholars and the opposition figures, and especially <coughs> Congressman Trent Franks and uh, uh, Prince Reza Pahlavi. Um, it's, I, I know Prince Reza Pahlavi for maybe 12 years. Uh, we are directly in touch. I, I knew him, everybody in Iran, they uh, knew him. But um, the, uh, I, I'm here to just with some uh, sh short uh, words, just introduce him and tell you how I know Prince Reza Pahlavi. I was in jail for more than five years. I was under torture and uh, eight months solitary confinement in Iran. And uh, in entire my life, for last 20 years, from the time I was 17, uh, my first arrest, um, I was fighting to just have the Republic of Iran. I was Republican in Iran. But it was really interesting for me when 12 years ago, um, I came out of jail for some days with bail, and then uh, the, some of our friends from Los Angeles, they put us in touch with uh, the office of Prince Reza Pahlavi. And uh, he knew that we, the student activists in Iran, we have the different ideology, and we are fighting for maybe the different uh, views, but he didn't care about that. And he wanted to be in touch with the Iranian people with the student movement, with the women's movement, with the labor movement in, in, inside Iran. And that was the good part. That was the part was really valuable for us. And uh, um, when uh, um, um, 12 years ago, Prince Reza Pahlavi had a press conference, we, uh, for the first time we spoke on the phone and then he said, um, Amir, can you uh, tell me what the Iranian people, the new generation, they want? I don't want to go to the press conference and talk about what we want here. I want to go and talk about what the people of Iran, inside Iran, they want. And we sent him a letter and he, uh, he I, I, was, I was shocked when I saw on all the entire um, uh, Persian TVs, they showed that press conference and Prince Reza Pahlavi, he was reading 
that letter, the long letter of us, some Iranian student activists, and at the end he um, even read our name, and that was um, that was an honor for us. I want to uh, just thank you, Prince Reza Pahlavi, for, for all these years. Um, you started fighting for freedom when you were 17. I started when I was 17. And uh, um, uh, I guess it's the time for all of us to come together as Congressman Trent Franks, the, the greatest man I know in the United States Congress, uh, mentioned we have the different views, but this is the time to come together and for the cause of unity, just put aside all of our differences and work together to bring down the Mullah. Uh, Prince Reza Pahlavi, please. Good morning, everyone. Uh, first and foremost, let me apologize for my late arrival, which was beyond my control. And uh, I would like to uh, first and foremost thank the Institute for inviting me to this uh, gathering and giving me this opportunity to share a few thoughts with you, uh, Congressman, ladies and gentlemen. Um, in the interest of time, I try to be as brief as possible, but try to give you an idea of how we have evolved and where we are today. At first, uh, I can simply say that the very reason for the existence of this regime from day one has never been in the interest of Iran or Iranians, but to export an ideology throughout the world. Um, if you carefully focus on every posture and behavior that this regime has had, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the international community, you can clearly see that no government that will really be uh, attentive to the needs of its citizens will take our country to the brink of possible war on the sole argument that they're trying to produce a few kilowatts of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. Why would this regime need to have the ultimate weapon in order to establish under its hegemony a regional religious dictatorship and have a deterrent force to force others to have to deal with that new reality without much to be able to be done with, which is, of course, why the world is very concerned about this regime's ambitions and its dubious or, to say the very least, opaque nuclear program. Having said that, the real issue to the majority of Iranians is not the nuclear issue. It has always been the lack of freedom and human rights in our country. And after 34 years, the situation has become worse than you can possibly imagine. Not just because people are suffering, not just because the economy is in a terrible situation, but this is the first time for a nation that has survived centuries of unity, we begin to hear the ugly face of separatism that could lead to Iran's dismantlement altogether. Not necessarily because the people who can no longer put up to this regime are at fault, but because nothing today gives an Iranian citizen absolute equal rights under the law because of their religious tendencies or ethnic background or political ideology. We have, on the other hand, witnessed for at least a couple of decades, an attempt from within Iran to try to see, despite the reality of this regime, an attempt to try to reform this regime. <coughs> Ever since the arrival on the scene of uh, President Khatami, 
we have seen many people try to see whether or not they can gradually achieve some degree of more liberalism or more access or more penetration. But at the end of the day, I think everybody today knows the ultimate conclusion, that this regime is irreformable, not just because of its constitution that limits the possibility of any legislation which is subject to a wanton veto of the supreme leader who could basically decide anything as a last word and controls every aspect of governance in Iran. On the other hand, looking from the outside in, I think one of the most basic problems has been that the foreign policy of many governments, particularly Western governments vis-a-vis -vis Iran, which ultimately led to the addition of economic sanctions to bring pressure on Iran, was not really aimed with the idea of putting an end to this regime, but has been mostly aimed to put pressure for the regime to change its behavior. And I think that leads to a bigger flaw of interpretation. Let me give you this example. At the time of the Cold War, in fact, at the hype of the Cold War, when you had the most diametrically opposed ideas on this planet. You had the US on the one hand symbolizing where the free capitalistic world was standing on, and you had the socialist, communist, international ideology of Moscow going head to head at each other. However, you could find a moment of rational coexistence of these two diametrically opposed systems that could even have treaties between themselves and coexist in the same sphere of rationality. The problem we have with this regime is that its survival depends on the total defeat of the other side. They cannot coexist in the world or a world that respects human rights, that respects democracy, that understands secularism, because to them it's like poison. And another reason why this regime cannot stop what it's doing is because it has failed in Iran itself. And unless it scores a point beyond its own borders, its already lost legitimacy will be further proof of its absolute uh, uh, demise, which is why even, even on the vague assumption that this regime might, on the 11th hour, back down from its nuclear threat, do you think they will stop at that? Will they stop their support for radical groups or terrorist groups in the region? Bottom line, I think for Iranians, and hopefully today, as I've witnessed in the last few months at least, a change of direction in a lot of thinking going on in various levels of decision-making and, and governance, uh, particularly in the Western world, uh, there's no question that at this point we have to come to this conclusion that the core of the problem started with this regime, and the start of change in the Middle East will start by putting an end to this regime. The question, however, is how? Before I get to that, let me explain to you what was it that uh, gave me this uh, incentive to become far more proactive in recent years uh, than I was before. And I have to tell you that the first element I'd like to credit for this is today's generation of young Iranians inside Iran. Particularly after what happened in 2009, which was really the birth of a movement which was short-lived for obvious reasons, uh, known as the Green Movement, while many focused only 
at the surface of the problem, being contesting the results of a fraud in an electoral process, if you could call a system in Iran as an election, but for what it's worth, it was controversial. But I'm certain that the millions that went into the streets had much more in mind than just contest the result of a vote. It was a far too long kept cry for freedom and for an opportunity to see what they really want. And indeed, it was no surprise. And for those of you who may remember the press conference I had in the National Press Club here in Washington a couple of weeks after what happened, I remember saying that this movement will have its ebbs and flows, that we cannot expect people to be on the streets weeks at a time. Uh, and the fact that people will be forced to submission or later on, as we witnessed, many were arrested, tortured, uh, and disappeared. Uh, and the leadership of the movement was heavily repressed. That doesn't mean that it's an end of a movement. It's just the beginning of the final phase of this struggle, past the area of giving the regime an opportunity to see whether or not it can be reformed. We could not have let this opportunity go to waste. I could not simply see yet another generation of young Iranians go to waste. And I also didn't think that Iran would have any more chance or time as the situation prevails within our country to stay in one piece. The ingredients were beginning to assemble. But beyond what I think has always been the fundamental demands of my compatriots, there was another important issue that we could not, not address, the, the huge elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, failed diplomacy and the option of war, neither of which can be a solution. Why diplomacy was bound to fail for the reasons I explained to you earlier, because you expect the other side to behave rationally and respond to an expectation that you think would make sense. And it has been a waste of time. And in fact, the regime has always tried to buy time and push it further and closer to this infamous red line that everybody, including the Israelis, are talking about. On the other hand, we cannot say that because diplomacy has failed, we have to go straight to a scenario of military confrontation. I've always urged policymakers, decision makers, to focus on this simple truth that in the past 34 years and counting, most of the dialogue that has existed with Iran by most countries and governments has been limited only to the regime and its representatives. And that has never been an official dialogue with the secular democratic forces within Iran who represent the majority of the Iranian people. We have never asked world governments to cease from communicating or opening, keeping a channel of dialogue open. Of course not. What we have been asking is how come we can deny the majority of the Iranian people a voice, especially when they are on your side vis-a-vis -vis a regime that is not? It simply doesn't make sense. And if you want to find a solution, who better to talk to than the people who are in the thick of it? And they can tell you what can and may not work. My idea was to start working directly and for a change with the people of this generation inside you. Not to be misinterpreted as bypassing or putting aside others, 
But for the simple reality that I think that the only thing that could truly be a basis of a legitimate and grassroots movement has to be based on an inverted pyramid. It has to come from the bottom up. We can no longer have an elitist approach that a few people in a room frame some subject and try to impose it on 70 million people without having a single say in the process. It has to be the other way around for it to have not only a true basis of popular support, and it is also at this time of our struggle, a movement that has very clear and simple objectives. And the basis of the council that we have proposed and we have been working in diligently for the past 15 months, and the first declaration that has been the basis of this consensus among all who have signed this charter in order to be participating in this movement, um, has been very pluralistic in the sense that it does not get into arguments of ideological preferences. It simply states that as Iranians, in order to regain our right to self-determination, and in order to be able to measure what people actually think, as opposed to claim we know what people want, the only way to achieve that is to have freedom of elections in Iran, the opportunity to have free and fair elections. If the ballot box is supposed to measure at the end of the day what is the will of our citizens. And until we don't have that moment in time in our country, any other arguments is absolutely irrelevant or almost futile. Irrespective of what we believe, if we believe that it's for the people of Iran to decide their future, then the simple question is, do they have today the opportunity to freely speak their mind and vote their conscience? They clearly don't. And this is why I've said to my fellow compatriots, irrespective of their political ideologies or opinions, being monarchists or republicans or on the left or on the right of the spectrum, that we can always preserve that vote and, and ultimately vote what we want when the process allows us, uh, allows us to do it. But today we are all in the same boat. If we believe in the tenets of human rights, if we believe in the tenets that one of the key aspects of democracy is to have a secular system when there's a clear separation of religions from government, then we are all, in a way, in the same boat. But we have to be able to start producing, by actions rather than by words, something that people can cling on to. Because to me, there are three factors that will make the Iranian society actually move. The first aspect is a clear definition of the alternative. Unlike 34 years ago, where it was said, let's get rid of the Shah's regime, then see what happens. Well, guess what? We all know what happens next. And how many people who were part of the revolutionaries of the time actually knew what Khomeini was standing for? This time, we're not just saying we want to get rid of this regime. But what do we want instead? What is it going to be and how we can get to it? Very important to understand, if you will, this path. The second factor which is important is, of course, leadership in the form of proper structuring and organization of any movement. I have yet to see any movement of the nature of which we're talking about, which is pretty much based on civil disobedience, succeed without having some degree of coordination in place. And, and last but not least, clearly, it needs to have a sense of international support. So what we have been proposing, basically, is that 
The National Council has simply one objective in mind. And the day we achieve that objective, it's, it's the end of its mission, if you will. It is basically to carry out a campaign for our rights as Iranian citizens to be able to conduct free and fair elections in Iran. It's as simple as that. We're not asking world governments to change their rhetoric and their foreign policy to advocate regime change in Iran. All we are asking them is to side with us as Iranians that we want to be able to have our destiny in our own hands in a democratic process. For those who believe that the regime has to change, of course, that's what we're talking about. It's changing the regime, but not calling it a policy of regime change. It's the consequence of what we ask that would lead to regime change. Why? Because basically, the regime is faced with two possibilities, or we are faced with two possibilities. Either this regime will voluntarily, under pressure, back away and allow for that to happen, which we know it won't, in which case we have no other choice but to overthrow this regime. The question is then the method. I want to go back to what I stated a little bit earlier and, and close on that note. Earlier I mentioned to you that the reason why nothing has changed is because the premise of forcing the regime to change its behavior was flawed to begin with. And in the same context, how could you expect the Iranian people to actually commit to any change? Because I heard a lot of people, not just in Washington, in fact, in Congress, but also in Europe and elsewhere. Well, if people are so unhappy, how come they are not moving? To which I said, first of all, how many times do people have to come to the streets and tell you in plain daylight, why aren't you on our side? How many chances do you think people get under such repressive regime to state that? But number two, if you think that Iranian people will actually risk their lives because your objective is only to force the regime to come to the negotiation table to talk to you by, by maintaining the status quo, you're crazy. Of course they won't. Why should they? However, however, if this time you say, you know what? We're going to reuse the instrument of sanctions to bring pressure on the regime from the outside. Not that it hasn't worked. But if people know that the consequences of this, if there's this time a direct support for dissidents and activists inside Iran to foment this civil disobedience that I've been talking about, then it makes a whole difference. Then everything changes overnight. This time they say, now we're talking. Now there's a real uh, attempt to, to change things. And it is not that it's the US government who wants to do that, or the French or British or any other government. It's the Iranian people who want that. And you're simply standing on their side saying, by all means, hell yes. They have to have their day and opportunity to vote freely. This regime doesn't give it to them. We, as democracies around the world, won't want anything less for our own citizens. And Iranians are any less uh, capable or any less uh, worthy of having the very same standards and principles that we hold dear to ourselves. And that's all we're asking for. So one last issue that I think is also very important for everyone to understand which is not only part of the spirit of this collaboration among Iranians today who seek, in general, a common uh, goal. It's also part of the process. And I must say that a lot of what went into this thinking to the extent that I was able to contribute to it is based on what I've been inspired with, having studied uh, 
events around the world that has led to successful fruition, many movements that were based on disobedience and non-cooperation. If we study Gandhi and what he did in India, if we study what the ANC did and Nelson Mandela in South Africa, when we look at what happened under Lech Walesa and Baklav Havel, to name a few, and of course, when one reads the spirit that went into the thinking that led to the Declaration of Independence in this country, and the vision that the forefathers that put the U.S. Constitution on the map for the first time. We're talking about the same vision. And one part of the vision that we want, that I would like to see in my country, is not just a vision of democracy and human rights and justice and all that, which goes without saying, <coughs> but it is also the absolute understanding, and I say this to Iranians and foreigners alike, we cannot hope to rebuild our nation unless we go through a process of national reconciliation and amnesty. Now, this is the most critical part of this. Why do I say this? Because the biggest worry of those who are stuck with the regime in Iran today, I'm talking about Revolutionary Guards, members of the Basij, many people who are part of the civil bureaucracy of the country, they like to ask the question, rightfully so, what will happen to us if this regime change? What about our future? Do we have any hope? Do we have any guarantee? To which I say, absolutely yes. You can be part of the solution if you don't want to remain part of the problem. A lot depends on where you line up today. But we want to give you this opportunity because we have to end the cycle of violence once and for all. We cannot begin to think of rebuilding Iran if it's going to be based on settling scores and revenge and accusations and pointing fingers and capital punishment and what have you. It has to stop somewhere. And I'm happy to report that part of this process that we have engaged, and the first document came out of Evin prison. I personally spoke to prisoners in Evin and other famous dissidents within Iran to make sure that what we do has their backing and their support. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what we do, it would not have any basis of legitimacy and support. But particularly the fact that this message has resonated and has resonated well within the Basij, within the Revolutionary Guards. I have personally been contacted many times throughout the past few months by saying how much they, they like to hear this and they like to hear more. And they like to hear it more not just from someone like me, but from other Iranians, that the spirit is there and alive and has to grow. We had diplomats who were working with the regime who are now joining this movement. We've had members of the current majlis in Iran who have signed under a pseudonym this uh, charter and want to participate. And so basically, the floodgates have now opened this time in the right direction. It would be therefore a shame if an incident internationally would provoke a stoppage of this process. My biggest fear would be that if we are not successful to put together this alternative in time and place, if something was to happen in, in the form of a military confrontation or something, you would instantly lose the support of those who could be on our side because they'll be forced to defend the country and you will lose many Iranians, yours truly included, in that process. All I'm asking as a final statement is give the Iranian people 
their day in court. Give them one opportunity to hear what they have to say. Give them the benefit of the doubt that if given all the resources, they'll make the right decision. And at the end of the day, none of us have the right to claim what the people of Iran ought to have. All we can claim is to defend their right to decide what they want for themselves, which is what I'm standing for. Thank you very much for it. I, I think we all needed a few minutes just to absorb <laughs> what has happened and, and the eloquent words that were said. Um, with me, it resonated in particular because the, the words that most stand in my mind were, why haven't the American officials talked to the people? Um, and I'm reminded, since Richard Pearl is here, I met him back in the 80s when he was one of those who helped members of Congress and of the U.S. Congress meet with dissidents in the former Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. I was born in Romania under communism and came here when I was a teenager. And the, those, those words also that of, of uh, uh, Prince Pahlavi to the effect that everyone thinks, well, if people haven't gone into, into a revolution then maybe they're, they're not that much against the regime. And as you said, how many times do they have to rise? In Romania, we couldn't rise at all. In Russia, in the Soviet Union, people couldn't. But if it had not been for the efforts of, of congressmen and senators with whom Richard worked closely, and then on, in the administration, under the Reagan administration, who knows what would have happened and there, too, the possibilities of a conflagration were huge. So thank you for coming. And thank you all. I also wanted to mention that some of you may know there are people here from all over the country who have flown in and driven in. And so this event will resonate further. Um,